It's good to see all of you here today. Thank you for coming and worshiping with us here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church and being a part of our service here this morning. Before we get to our sermon today, I, I wanted to share what I believe to be a wonderful bit of news with you, our church family here at Ivy Creek. I wanted to let you know that as a result of your faithful giving, uh, much of which has been over and above your tithes and offerings, but even more importantly, as a result of God's hand of blessing upon this church, that Ivy Creek Baptist Church has now, as of this month, officially retired all of the debt that was owed on these buildings and any buildings we have and all the property that we have here. Praise the Lord. We praise the Lord for His blessings upon our church, and, and I want to express to you my personal appreciation for all of you who have, who have faithfully been giving and, and uh, giving of your resources to help us in all the ministries that we do here, not just in retiring our debt, but in the ministries that go on here. And, and, I, and I believe that God has blessed you, and you in turn have been a blessing to this church family, and I, I want to thank you for that. Now, many of you know, as you've probably already figured out this morning, parking is tight on this property. Uh, seating can be a little tight, though I will tell you there's some nice rows right here that you are welcome to sit on. They're a little closer. I don't get better looking as you get close. But nevertheless, we know that. We're aware that the staff and, and, and the, the leadership of this church are well aware of some of the issues that we are facing. Here's what we do know. We do believe that as God is, is the same God that brings folks to us and allows us to be able to minister to those folks. He is also the same God who is over, over and in charge of those things and will bring us to an understanding of what we should do when those times come about how to fix some of those issues and how, to, how we should go about that. And so please be aware as we keep our eyes on the future and as we want to be able to address those issues as, as the Lord gives us the wisdom and the understanding to do that, what we desperately want to do is continue to be good stewards of all that that God has blessed us with. And we want to know that, that, that God has the opportunity to do all manner of things through our lives. And so we desire to be a community that continues to serve Him and continues to remain faithful to what He has called us to do. And so from the bottom of my heart, I thank you. And I look forward to see how God is going to continue to bless this church in the years to come. If you have your Bibles, and I certainly hope you brought them with you this morning, would you please take them out and turn with me to the book of 2 John. 2 John. We concluded our study of 1 John last week, and now we move on to the next letter that bears his name in the New Testament, the book of 2 John. It's a small, little, short letter that is there. As you're making your way to that point, I want to share a story with you that when I first read it, I thought it might even be apocryphal. I wasn't sure if it, if it was even true, but then I did a little research and found out that it, it was attested to from a number of sources as being credible, so I'm going to share it with you. The story uh, concerns two great and renowned preachers of the previous century, the early 1900s. Their names, who were they were great friends with one another, by the way. Their names were Dr. Donald Barnhouse and Dr. Harold Ockengay. These two men, they were such great friends, they actually went on a 30-day preaching tour across the country together. And during the, when they went on that preaching tour, they went to a different city and preached in a different church every night of that 30-day tour. And, and Dr. Ockengay, in his pre preparation for that, for that tour, actually prepared a different sermon to preach in every single church that he came to. Every night they were in a different city, he preached a different sermon. Dr. Barnhouse, on the other hand, had one sermon. And he preached the same sermon in the different city, in the different church, every single night, all through that 30-day tour. Now, as the story goes, they would alternate who would go first each night 
One would go first one night, and then that person would go second the next night. So they would alternate. And it came to the very last day of that 30-day speaking tour. And it fell upon Dr. Ockengay. He was the one who would be delivering the first sermon that night. And so as he found himself there, they were in Richmond, Virginia. He decided that he was going to have a little fun at Dr. Barnhouse's expense. His expense. He'd been listening, you see, for the previous 29 days to that same sermon delivered exactly the same way, night after night after night. And so when he was the first to go on the very last night, he stood up and he called out the text and he preached Dr. Barnhouse's sermon verbatim that night. He used the same text, he used the same outline, he used the same illustrations. He was a sharp mind, he'd heard it 29 times, he knew how to do it, and so he preached it. When he was done, Akengay went and sat down and he just kind of gave a little knowing look over to Barnhouse, a little smirk and a smile. Now, Dr. Barnhouse was not known to be a very emotional person and he was quite emotionless that night. He didn't even acknowledge that anything had happened. He just simply stood up, rose, went to the pulpit, called out another text and preached a completely different sermon. At the close of the service, as the lights were turned low, the two men were preparing to leave. Dr. Ockengay looked at his dear friend, Dr. Barnhouse, and he said with a smile, the congregation really seemed to enjoy your sermon that I preached tonight. <laughs> Dr. Barnhouse remained expressionless, and he replied, well, maybe, but I don't think they enjoyed it as much as they did when I preached it here two months ago. <laughs> Now, I found that story interesting as I read it this week because on a number of different levels. Because as we come to the letter of 2 John, we very likely may come to the same conclusion that many who were in that congregation in Richmond, Virginia came to that night. We may be thinking to ourselves, you know, I've, I believe I've heard this before. I think I've heard what it is that John's writing about here in 2 John before. And you know what? You'd be right. Because we have just spent the last four months going through the book of 1 John. And 1 John is a treatise that is written about a number of different issues of which when he writes the book of 2 John and 3 John, those two letters, we will find some of those same issues coming back again. And so we very well may likely go, I think I've heard this. You have. Here's what I want to caution us of. I want to caution us this morning not to adopt an attitude that says it's simply because we believe that we've heard all this before that we tune out what it is that John writes to us here. We don't given that as an option as believers to tune out what the Holy Spirit directed John to pen in these letters. Rather, what we ought to do is allow the Holy Spirit of God to use His Word to convict us and to bring us to an even greater understanding of these truths so that we might even be more thorough in our obedience of them. So is that is a sort of brief little understanding of what we're going to find as we read this second epistle of John. Let's hear it this morning. And though I'm only going to focus really and in, in, in preach really from the first six verses today, I want to read the entire letter so that you get a full understanding of the context in which these verses apply. So 2 John verse 1 says this, The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you, and I believe the better translation will be with us, from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth, 
as we received commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. And he who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine... Do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Having many things to write to you, I do not wish to do so with paper and ink. But I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you have delivered it to us. Thank you that you're the sovereign God who not only inspired John and the rest of the writers to write the words down, but that you also superintended over its preservation throughout the years. And that, Lord, even today, that we, as we pick up this scripture and reread it, we know that it is alive and that it is powerful and that it does the business that you desire for it to do and that it brings conviction into our hearts and that we can trust it. And we know that the Holy Spirit is using it to bring that conviction so that you might conform us in the image of your Son, Jesus. So Lord, we pray you'll do that today. Pray that we'll be able to keep our, our minds and our attention focused on this word for this short amount of time, that you might use it to do just that in our lives. We pray this, that you might be exalted, that we might have our good done for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as I indicated in my opening comments this morning, my guess is that you were able to, to recognize a lot of the, the thematic elements of 2 John. You were able to, to realize that they are similar to that which we've read about in 1 John. Themes such as truth and love and obedience and false doctrine and the, the teachers that teach it. However, it's also likely that you notice that 2 John was written structurally different. It's not structured the same way that 1 John was structured. You see, 1 John was really written more as a treatise or a public theological document that was designed to be read and to be passed around to, to different individual congregations. Consequently, when we read 1 John, we don't find any reference to personal addresses or salutations or, or closing remarks. But 2 John is different. You see, in it, John follows the typical conventional first century form of a personal letter. He begins by identifying himself. He, he identifies himself as the sender of the letter, and he calls himself the elder. We know that John was an old man by the time that he wrote these, and so he refers to himself as the elder. That could very easily have been a term of endearment that was used with regard to him. But then he names his addressees. He says, the elect lady and her children. And then next he gives a salutation. Verse 3, he says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you, or will with, be with us, from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, he gives he concludes with a closing greeting. He says, the children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. 
Now, all of these elements, they are typical things that you would find in a first century personal letter. We have many examples of that in our New Testament, as a matter of fact. Now, because the structural differences that we see between 1 John and 2 John, I put myself in the camp of those who believe that the letter of 1 John was written for a wide distribution. It was written to be read by, by many different churches across the, the epicenter there of Ephesus. While I believe 2 John and, and actually 3 John as well were letters that were written to specific individual congregations in and around that epicenter of Ephesus. So consequently, what we see is that 2 John, it addresses a church. It addresses a church and its members. He, he says this is to the elect lady and her children. Now, let me just say, I don't believe that John was writing to an individual woman and her biological children. Some have debated that through the years, but I, I think the, the testimony of Scripture will bear out what I'm about to say, and that is that I believe what John was do, doing was, was using a term of endearment, but he was using an honorary title, a metaphor, if you will. We know that the New Testament tells us that the church is the bride of Christ and it, and it talks about it in, in that way. Well, in this way, we see that John very likely is using that same sort of a, an honorary metaphor to describe this church as the elect lady. And he also, if you'll notice at the end, speaks of her elect sister, referring to another congregation for whom he is writing to. So that's the way that I understand this, that he is using this letter to write to a particular church and to a particular member of, those congrega of that congregation. Furthermore, I believe that 2 and 3 John really serve as like cover letters. I believe that 1 John was the theological treatise that was designed to go out to all these broad range of different churches in and around Ephesus, but, but 2 John and 3 John really are examples of what a cover letter would look like. It was attached to, and a carrier would have taken this to the specific church, and John would have said, I've got a, a special word for them that I want you to give to them. And then you give to them the, the, the larger treatise of 1 John. That's the way that I think 2 and 3 John focus and, and then how they do it. Consequently, what we see is that, that they're a much brief, more, more brief letter than 1 John. But let me say this to you, the brevity of 2 John as well as that of 3 John regrettably have caused these letters to go largely ignored through the century. But a lot of folks don't spend a whole lot of time looking at them because they are so short. And I believe that's unfortunate because I believe that though they are shorter than 1 John, they are nevertheless packed with theological and doctrinal truth. In fact, I hope as you noticed as I was reading through it this morning that the term truth is a key word in John's second epistle. In fact, it is that truth that lies at the heart of John's purpose for writing this brief letter. Let me give you the reason that I think he wrote the letter. You actually will find it down in verses 7 through 10. And the Lord willing, we're going to come back to these verses next week. But for the time being, let me just give you this understanding. What we learn is that truth is very important to John. As a matter of fact, the truth as it pertains to Jesus Christ of Nazareth being the, the Messiah, the Christ, God come in the flesh... That is so central and so absolutely necessary that John instructs this church to whom he writes. He says, if you have some other Christian who comes along naming themselves as a Christian, but they peddle to you a gospel that is different from that apostolic message that I preach to you and the message that you learn from the apostolic writings of the other apostles, listen, you are not to entertain them into your home. You're not to even greet them lest you share in their evil deeds. Now, as I said, we're going to come back to this next week, Lord willing. 
But I want you to see that the structure and the purpose of this letter, particularly as it relates to truth, is necessary because we're going to see that truth, as it relates to how it, is just, how it comes out in our lives through love, is the top priority for John. In fact, note that the word truth occurs five times in the first four verses. And the word love occurs four times in the first six verses. And John even joins the two of them together, hand in hand, down in verse 3. And he goes on to tell us that living in accordance with truth requires us to live in the unity of love. And I hope to be able to draw all that out for you in just a moment. But I want to focus to begin with at verse 3 on the salutation of this letter. Because there, John gives us some really key and, and very instructive things that he tells us. Listen, let me read it for you again. Verse 3 says this, John writes, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Now, if that salutation sounds somewhat familiar, it probably should. Because every New Testament letter that we have pretty much has something along those lines in there. For example, we, we first think about letters, we think of the ones that the Apostle Paul wrote. And when the Apostle Paul wrote letters, he wrote letters to the, to the, to the Romans and the Corinthians and to the Galatians and the Ephesians and the Philippians and the Colossians and the Thessalonians. And listen, through every one of those, invariably he says this. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very similar to what John writes there. Not only that, but first, in 1 Peter, Peter writes this word. He says, grace to you and peace be multiplied. In Jude, Jude writes this salutation. He says, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So it's really not uncommon. What John writes here is very similar. What he writes here in 2 John is, is not outside the norm. Nevertheless, it is unique. You see, unlike those other salutations, John's differs in that when he expresses what he does, his is not so much of a wish that he hopes that they will have grace and peace and love and it will be multiplied. His is a statement of affirmation. His says grace, mercy, and peace will be with his readers and with him. You'll note that some of your Bibles, as I said, there's a textual variant there. I believe that us, I believe it's an inclusive pronoun that's there that John writes to. But he includes himself and he says that the, that the emphasis is on affirming that they will receive that grace, mercy, and peace as a result of their faith. In fact, in the Greek, will be received is the first words of the sentence. The nouns, grace, mercy, and peace, come later. And that means that when, when it was written, when John writes that, he is wanting to emphasize their confidence that they can have, that they will receive those things. And we know that he's talking about eternal life and salvation by the words that he uses. Consider what the word grace means. Grace is a term that refers to God's favor and His love toward believers. Grace is not a wage that is earned. A wage is something that somebody has paid because they did something to earn it. Grace is not like that. Grace is rather a gift that is completely undeserved. Mercy, on the other hand, is the other side of grace. Mercy means that God does not treat believers as they deserve. You see, the Apostle Paul tells us that the wages of sin is what? Death. Right. That tells us what we do deserve. We do deserve death. We do deserve punishment because of our sin. But God in His mercy does not give us what we deserve. Instead, because of our faith in His Son, He restrains His wrath. 
He, he holds back the rightly deserved punishment from our sins. Of course, the full verse that Paul writes is this, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. There we come back to grace again. It is a gift that is given. So, brothers and sisters, our only hope for salvation, our only hope for eternal life is based upon God giving us grace, giving us that which we do not deserve, His love and His favor, and it is mercy. It is Him withholding from us that which we do deserve, His eternal punishment and death. And then there's a third word that's there. It's peace. And, and peace really is not to be understood so much as a, a means of absence of strife, though it does include that, but it's even a bigger understanding than that. It, it implies that we who are at one time enemies of God because of our sin, now we are no longer at enmity with Him. Because He has dealt with us in grace and because He has dealt with us in mercy, we can now know that we are at peace with God. We're no longer at enmity with As I, Howard Marshall, has written, he says this, Peace represents the sum total of the spiritual blessings given to men by God in His grace and mercy. So that's how those come together. Now in the last part of verse 3, notice this, having just revealed the good news of the assurance of salvation and having defined what that is, John makes sure that he reminds us that the only agent through which we can receive that is God the Father through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says it comes from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. Now make no mistake about this. When John says what he does here, he is putting God the Father and God the Son on equal terms with one another. As John Stott has written, he says that the equality of the Son and the Father as the fount of all blessings are the main point that John is saying here. So when it, the Apostle John is, is unequivocally stating that Jesus Christ is, has full divinity of equalness with that of the Father. So in light of all that, he said, let me direct you to the first point that I want you to see on your outline this morning. And I've kind of put it all together in one big lump sum, so we'll just work our way through it, okay? First, the first point that I want you to see this morning is this. The assurance of God's salvation made available through Jesus Christ His Son is good news on three fronts. First, sub-point A, it is grace. The free gift of God's love and favor which we do not deserve. Secondly, it is mercy. It's the withholding of God's wrath and punishment, which we do deserve. And then finally, it's peace. It's the restoration of harmony with God. That is the assurance of God's salvation made available to us. It is grace, it is mercy, and it is peace. And it is assured to us because it will be ours. We can have confidence in that. And we have confidence not in ourselves, but in what Jesus Christ has done. The co-equal, co-eternal Son of God who always has been, who gave His life for us. Then notice at the very end of that, John adds this phrase, in truth and love. Both truth and love are there. And, and that really forms the heart of what John's exhortation is inside this passage with regard to faithfulness. In fact, what John says that is that truth and love must go hand in hand. They're tied together. To show you what I mean, look back at verse 1. There John says that the church to whom he's writing to, this elect lady, 
He's writing to them because He loves them in truth. His, his love is tied to the truth. Not only His love, but notice the next phrase, not only I, but also all those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. John begins his letter by stating that, that it was the truth that bound him together in love with this congregation. And it was that same truth that bound others who were committed to it in love. What is that truth? Well, in light of what this text reveals to us, it's a truth concerning Jesus Christ. Because down in verse 7, he says, there have been those deceivers who's going out and telling you that Jesus has not come in the flesh. And, and he says, those people are deceiving you. They are antichrist. And so for John, the truth is tied directly to who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so it's that truth that had been believed and accepted and, and was being held to by these different congregations. That truth is then what bound those people together in love. It was the glue that held them together. And so what we understand about that is that truth is something that can be known objectively. You see, as it pertains to what the Bible reveals about Jesus Christ, truth is not subjective. With regard to Jesus, with regard to who He is and what He came to do, that kind of truth is not left up to our own individual interpretations. Jesus proclaimed, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Very simply put, what that says is there is only one way, there is only one truth, and there is only one life. And every bit of that is tied up and finds its rest in who Jesus is in his person and the gospel of which he came to proclaim. So there is a truth that has a capital T in front of it. And it is an objectively true truth that is true for all men, all women, all boys and all girls across all time. What John says here is that those who have come to know that truth, who have come by faith to believe in it and trust in it, they are the same ones who love others who are in that truth. It compels them to love their brothers and sisters in Christ. It is the objective nature of the truth that draws us together and knits our hearts together in mutual love. And it's on the basis of that mutual acceptance of the truth concerning Christ that allows us to love one another. To quote John Stott here again, he says, we do not love each other because we are temperamentally compatible or because we are naturally drawn to one another. We love each other because of the truth which we share. So what can we deduce from that? What can we learn from that? What does that tell us? Well, it tells us this. It tells us that we cannot, under any circumstances, determine that love is all we need. Regardless of what the Beatles may have sang on their Magical Mystery Tour album, love is not all that we need, not according to the New Testament, not according to the Gospel. You see, many today will agree with the Beatles and others like them. They say that what we need to do is just do away with doctrine, let's do away with theology, let's do away with, with attempting to try to define things as the Bible teaches them to us. All we need to do is just love one another, to be all-inclusive. All we need to do is, is to soften our stance with regard to what the Scriptures proclaim so that we don't offend other people. Friend, understand this. Downplaying doctrine is not God's way of advancing the cause of love among His people. 
In reality, as Greg Allen has written, God's way of advancing love is by proclaiming gospel truth. Love separated from love separated from faithful adherence to truth will only end up creating nothing more than sentimental religious feelings. And friend, I want you to know, sentimental religious feelings will be of absolutely no value to you on judgment day. When you stand before the God who has created you and who has decreed that Jesus Christ, His Son, is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, then the only question that will be in front of you that day is what did you do with Jesus? Let me quote John Stott once more. We shall never increase the love which exists between us by diminishing the truth which we hold in common. In the contemporary movement towards church unity, we must beware of compromising the very truth on which alone true love and unity depend. So that's the first thing that we learn about truth. It's that it is something that is objectively known. It is something that exists as a fact out there regardless of what we think about it in here. It is absolutely true across all time and across all people and it is true regardless of whether we agree with it or not. John also tells us something else about that truth that once it's believed, it doesn't just remain out there, it gets in here. It's not just objectively known, it is something that abides in us. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says, the truth which abides in us will be with us forever. In other words, the objective truth concerning Jesus Christ has become a personal influence with the believer. And it will remain with him forever. It's not just a truth to be believed out there, but it is a truth that must get in here, into our hearts. In fact, look at what he says in verse 4. Verse 4, John expresses his joy at the fact that he had found some of your children walking in truth as we received commandment from the Father. Now, there have been many who have debated, was this, was this John's way of criticizing that church? Or was it his way of commending her? I mean, he only says some of her children that he found walking in truth. Well, the fact is, we don't know. Did he mean some in a good way or a bad way? We don't know. Here's what we do know. We do know that though, because he found some walking in the truth, it caused him to rejoice greatly. And what, he tell, what that tells us is that truth is not, again, something to be out there. It's something to be in here. It is true. It is objective in its true nature. But it is also something that is to compel us to live our lives in a certain way. John talks about walking in the truth, which tells us that truth is not merely a set of beliefs that we must mentally assent to in some abstract manner, but it is something that's affecting how we live. It's not just something that goes into our heads. It's something that affects the way we walk and the way we touch things and the way we speak. It gets in us. And this is where the whole issue of love comes back in. It wraps back into play here. Because then, as a, in light of all that, John says this in verse 5, something that he nearly sounds verbatim to what he's told us in 1 John. But here down in verse 5, he says, And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to His commandments. And this is His commandment, that you have, believed, that you have heard from the beginning. You should walk in it. That ought to sound familiar. 1 John was replete with words just like that. 1 John 3.11, For this is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 
1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another. 1 John 4, 21, and this is the commandment. We have heard from Him that he who loves God must love his brother also. What John tells us here in 2 John is very similar to what he said earlier. We who are recipients of God's salvation, we must love others. We must, we must walk in the truth, but we are also to walk in obedience to His command to love one another. Faith and love are both signs that we have truly been born again. 1 John 3, verse 23, he says, And this is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. So, what are we to infer from that? How are we to, in, how are we to decide what we need to do with that information? Well, just as we saw earlier, love separated from truth sends us down the wrong path toward worthless sentimentalism. Here we see that truth separated from love sends us down the path of divisiveness and factions. Brothers and sisters, we must unwaveringly hold to the truth, but we must also do it with love in our hearts toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. As a matter of fact, we know what Jesus said. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That leads me to the last point that I want you to see today. Point number two is this. God's salvation depends, excuse me, God's salvation demands that we walk obediently according to truth and love. God's salvation demands that we walk obediently according to truth and love. So, what we've seen is that in a much more concise way, Second John, John has reminded us of some of those very core truths that he expanded and talked to us in great detail about in 1 John. But through this repetition, he has drilled home just how important it is for us to understand the truth regarding the person and the work of Jesus. How absolutely necessary it is for us to relentlessly hold to that truth in a world that is constantly trying to redefine truth for us. Furthermore, he has reminded us that that truth is what unites us together and it solidifies that bond of love that we have with one another and then finally he has reminded us of the assurance and the confidence that we have as believers in his salvation in the grace and the mercy and the peace that he provides us through his son therefore then that leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning and I will state this and we'll close my sermon in a sentence is this as believers who have received the fullness of God's salvation through Christ we must live obedient lives that are characterized by simultaneously walking in truth and love. Let me ask you this morning, are those your convictions? First of all, have you by faith received God's salvation? Is, is His free gift of love and favor yours by possession? Has His mercy gripped your heart? Can you say with certainty that there is peace between you and the God of heaven because of what Jesus Christ has done. Friend, that is where things must begin. It begins by repenting of your sins and confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. Is that your assurance today? If it is, then let me ask you this. Are you firmly clinging to the truth? Are you walking in it? Has it traveled from your head to your heart and to your feet and to your hands? Are you abiding in the truths of the Scriptures? Are you living obedient lives to the Holy Scriptures? Are you loving as you should? 
Are you loving your brothers and sisters in Christ as you ought to? Serving them. And then by doing that, serving as a, as a testimony to a lost world. Do you have love for the lost world around you? So much so that you're willing to sacrifice in order to get the truth of God's offer of grace, mercy, and peace to them. Brothers and sisters, this is what I know. Second John is brief, but it packs a punch. And it'll continue to pack that punch as we come back to it, Lord willing, next week. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. It's for the people of God. Let's pray together.